You are listening to a recording by Lisa Page. For further information about events, programs, or mentoring, please visit www.lisapage.com. That's L-I-S-A-P-A-G-E dot com. Okay, so welcome to Lisa Page Live. Thank you for being here. I'm Lisa Page, your host. So today my guest is Dave Stringer. And for those of you who don't know Dave, he's a Grammy-nominated producer, he's a composer, a singer, and in my books, a really beautifully irreverent teacher. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's really no one who rocks Kirtan and soul-awakening music like Dave does. And I've known and loved Dave's music for many years. I was thinking how to describe what Dave does as a singer at his events and concerts, if you haven't been, just to give you a taste of it. And probably the best way that I can describe it is Dave has this incredible uh, heart opening and very skilled capacity to gather everyone together through his music into the same the same rhythm, the same rhythm of breath and into the same moment and, and into this very delicious groove and communion of connection and group ecstasy, which in my experience really allows everyone in the crowd to feel alive, to feel truly alive and to feel that that thread, that oneness, that love consciousness dancing alive in your body, whatever you want to call it, um, that, that thing that we know is living us and breathing us. And I, that's really one of the reasons why I love, uh, I love uh, going to Dave's uh, concerts, but also one of the reasons why I went to uh, his flight school, which is a training that he does. Um, and I remember on the very first night of flight school, which was just a couple of months ago here in Australia, we all sang together for the first night and at the end I had that same feeling of ah, oh, it's just that deep body, heart, soul relaxation and that uh, this revelation of this is what life could be like every day for all of us if we just allowed the the ecstasy and and I would say the agony both to bring us alive in each moment so and I think that's probably part of the reason that, that Dave and I connected, aside from the fact that he's a really good human. There are threads in his work with music and my work with women and couples in sacred intimacy um, that weave together really, really nicely, which is why we decided to explore mantras, molecules, sex and the sacred with you today. So... For those of you who don't know Dave officially, uh, he is a Grammy-nominated producer, singer, composer, writer, and teacher. He's definitely one of the most innovative artists in the modern yoga movement, and his work really weaves the traditions of yoga philosophy, chanting, um, of uh, yoga philosophy, chanting, and meditation with language and neuroscience. So we're going to today geek out a little bit on the neuroscience of all of this, which really is just science confirming what we 
what we intuit and what we know in our bodies and hearts and souls. He's a brilliant artist and, as I said, a, a really lovingly irreverent teacher, which I love, and he's toured extensively, uh, leading concerts and workshops and retreats all over the world. He's also just been featured in an upcoming documentary called uh, Mantra, Sounds into Silence, uh, and, power, and also a new one coming up called The Power of Mantra uh, with Uplift, which he can tell you more about. So all of that said and done, let's welcome Dave Stringer to the line. Good morning, good evening, Dave. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here. <clears throat> that was one of the nicer introductions I've ever received. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. All true. <clears throat> so listen, um, I think before we dive in, I wanted to ask if you could give a very quick introduction for those people who are on the line or listening to the podcast who don't know what Kirtan is or who don't know what Mantra is. So I have some really juicy questions to dive into, but I feel that that, that would be uh, create a good uh, foundational understanding for everyone diving in. Of course. Uh, one of the things that you said in the concert is, or in the introduction was you described my events as concerts, which um, is, I think, possibly not the most perfect description uh, in uh -huh. the sense that uh, what we're what we're doing a concert is something where you go and you listen to somebody perform and you receive the music but kirtan is a form of music in which you participate in the music yeah. and that makes an enormous difference everybody is singing and if I'm singing and you're singing and we're all creating the music together, it begs the question, who is the audience and who is the performer? And yeah. the form of, of music actually attempts to blur that distinction utterly. And there's a deeper philosophical question that, in effect, it's getting at, which is uh, we see ourselves as separate beings and the world is somehow out there. And in many ways, we feel disconnected uh, from it. We're in it, somehow not of it. Um, and yet we have all of these experiences uh, that actually counter that experience. Moments when we feel deeply, intimately connected with all there is in our lives mm. are kind of toggling between these moments of unitary consciousness and these feelings of intense separation and often sometimes loneliness. Um, music has an incredible capacity to... Uh, overcome those feelings of separation and bring us into a space of unity. So from a, the perspective of yoga philosophy, the, the world and the observer of the world are, are one. The music is also saying that, in effect, the singer and the song are one. The observer and that which is being observed are one. The audience and the performer are one. And we get there by singing certain phrases over and over, mantras. Uh, mantra really means literally man, mine, tra, tool in the, sans in the Sanskrit language. Um, Sanskrit itself uh, is a very, very old language that linguistically is one of the root languages of uh, English, German, Russian, French, Italian, Spanish, many modern European languages, and also many of the languages of the subcontinent. Uh, but when a mantra is called a mind tool, what it is 
What that refers to is a means of investigating and working with the mind. Most of us mm. think that we are our thoughts and that our mind is our thoughts. But it's possible to take a step back and watch yourself thinking. When you're able to observe your mind from a perspective that's watching it, you become less identified with the thoughts themselves and more with the observer of the thoughts. Uh, as you become identified with that, you often have a feeling of connection, unity, something like ecstasy. So, um, so we use these mantras, which are simple sounds that uh, can provoke uh, a kind of expansive state to give your mind something to do in a way to replace thoughts with sound. Um, and those sounds themselves are often really beautiful and require no interpretation. The first mantra I was ever introduced to was the mantra Om Namah Shivaya. And uh, I was in a tent, actually, on a hilltop in India with about a thousand people, and we were asked to repeat it over and over again for about an hour out loud, which um, seemed like some kind of cosmic John Cage experimental <laughs> sound installation piece, you know? And uh, 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 the effect of the mantra, because no one explained it to me, was really quite profound. Um, as I listened to the sounds, I realized that all of the sounds were sounds that had meanings to me already. The sound, oh, uh, meant something like wonder or surprise or wow. And the sound yeah. mm, felt really, right? felt close and satisfying. The sound like ah had satisfaction in it. Um, sound shh has feeling of quiet in it. Uh, e feels free and feels vibratory. And so the mantra seemed to be directing me toward an experience that was made up of all those things, expansion, closeness, satisfaction, freedom, quiet, vibration, all those things together. Um, so I understood it in my body uh, in a way that, uh, I mean, I could write paragraphs about it and it wouldn't come close to how it felt yeah. to sing it. Uh, and, and that's ultimately what I got from it was that it was the experience of singing something kind of nonsensical in very large group that transported me into something that was beyond my mind. So this form of music is called kirtan and um, uh, which means uh, to repeat um, and uh, so we repeat the mantra over and over. The, the, the music starts slowly, and then it speeds up, and it gets faster and faster and faster, and it moves in a kind of serene way from uh, something quite slow and, uh, and deep into something like quite rhythmic and quite ecstatic with people clapping their hands and dancing. And um, it produces a, an experience of mass ecstasy. Hmm. So I don't know if that's a concert. It's definitely a happening. No, it's definitely not a concert. And, and I stand yeah, really beautifully corrected, yeah. And, and I actually, I think what I love is, if I remember f correctly from your story, when you did first go to India, you, you didn't go, you know, I'll preframe this by saying, I think quite often we think, oh, 
someone said that if I chant this mantra or if I do this yoga posture, I'll feel blah, blah, blah. Whereas for you, there was no, that wasn't part of it. You were just going to do your, your thing and you discovered it without the expectation of this mantra doing anything uh, or saving you from any kind of feeling. It was, it, it's, to me, that's kind of like this very, you know, like, a, like that innocence of a child that kind of goes, oh, what, oh, that, what happens when I do this with my body? What happens when I make this right. sound? It, I think that is just so beautiful. And what that means is that you can articulate a mantra like Om Namah Shivaya as you did, which, which feels so natural to our way of being if we were of no mind, if our mind weren't in the way with expectation or judgment or anything else. Yeah, it uh, the the door I entered through was purely uh, was purely experiential. Um, the, I I've always had some problems with um, with things like belief and faith. I realized yeah. to a certain extent, in order to live, you have to you know believe that as you're walking across that crosswalk, that you know the driver that stopped isn't going to suddenly decide to run you over you know sure. there's a lot of things that we do on belief and faith but um when you start to investigate you know the realm of like who we really are what is this mind what is what is this feeling we call love like what are we doing here what is this universe um so many of the world's religions I've been exposed to have asked me to take things on faith and I don't really work that way. Um, mm -hmm. My process of inquiry starts with doubt. And uh, so I've always felt a little bit strange in, in many spiritual circles, but I found myself in an ashram in India editing some films for them, which were meant to be for uh, a series about Eastern philosophy for beginners. And I was hired because I was a good film editor, but I was also a beginner. So the idea was for me to see it through the eyes of innocence, as you said, and uh, as opposed to informing me, hey, this is what this is about, or this is what it's for, they let me simply experience things right. and, uh, and draw, my con draw my conclusions from those experiences. And uh, that's the thing that I really, really like about the system of yoga and yoga philosophy is that it, it's based upon that. Um, so I started having these really fantastic experiences with these chants that I was involved in, and it led me to start asking questions about, well, how does this work? Because I'm not invested in trying to make it work. Um, I've been around enough circumstances in, for example, some evangelical Christian situations in which you could feel how a crowd wanting to, you know, put all their energy towards something can be quite powerful. And mm -hmm. um, it's not a small thing, and, it, and it's not necessarily an illusory thing. But, um, but I always wondered, if we, if we take belief and projection out of the experience, then, you know, what's, what's, what's really there? And yeah. how does that really work? Um, so uh, I started then to try and investigate, like, by what mechanism I felt these shifts in consciousness. Because one of the things that happens in a kirtan, in a long chanting session, is you have many, many people all chanting together, and everybody's breathing together. Everybody's mm. 
breath at the same time, which is really key. Like if you ever sing in a choir, that's part of the excitement of a choir is everybody takes a breath and then all these voices are, are unified and there's a real power in that. Um, like a, there's a palpable sense of consciousness shifting and coming together that all of the individual thoughts have kind of lined up in, into creating something uh, much, much bigger. Mm. And um, that interested me. Um, it interested me that, that the power of the music was that it could move me from uh, an identification with my individual self uh, through a sense of release of that uh, container. And, and it's like sort of my little drop merged into a very big ocean. And that loss of my restricted sense of self uh, was offset by a much bigger gain of this feeling of, of something like ecstatic freedom, um, which is what so many spiritual traditions talk about. But it's quite different to like take that on faith as if it comes at some point later in some far heaven, yeah. uh, or only after you go through all these intense practices to get there. Instead, just through singing and, and drumming and dancing, like we were delivered to an experience that, that, that felt, I guess I want to say, more real than real. You know, yeah. like when, when you enter that space, it, it has a feeling of being m- more real than what you just came from in the same way that if you wake up from a dream, the dream seemed real while you were dreaming it. But then when you wake up, you're like, oh, this is reality and that's a dream. So yeah. this feeling of ecstasy was like another step along that continuum as if like then my waking reality is a dream and that this feeling of unity and flow and connection uh, was what was really real. Just feel, I just want to speak to that piece around around waking up from a dream and it's just so true because when you're in a dream it, it feels really real but that you you do realize when you wake up what is reality and what is even more real than that and I think that's where that 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 dissolving of boundaries and that sort of becoming um one with the music my partner was showing me just just last night a, a music video of this 14 year old girl uh, Japanese girl dancing and to to see her dance there was no there was no separation between her and the music it's, she was it was exquisite and it was it was completely different to anyone else dancing because they were dancing to the music as opposed to there's a merging that that ha- that happens and I think that that when we, I think we intuit that, you know, we have these moments of with a lover or with a sunset or in song or something where our mind really is not involved, where we feel that and we intuit that, that that's really what's real. That's, that's, that's really the it that we're for the rest of the time trying to experience but it's always there just waiting for us to just drop into it yeah um now uh, we call it a flow state in back in india 
uh, at the dawn of yoga philosophy, they called it um, uh, Satchidananda, being consciousness and bliss, a feeling of like that all being merged into one. And um, the thing that's amazing is that anybody can touch it because, in effect, we're, yoga philosophy says we're all of it. Yes. That the ground of uh, of all things is is consciousness and um and that in fact our material bodies come from that that it's not the way the opposite way around uh science um has been looking for a very long time for the origin of consciousness in the material body um yoga philosophy has always held that the origin of the body is consciousness. Um, increasingly, science is swinging around uh, to that point of view. There's an Australian uh, scientist, Davis, uh, David Chalmers, who's spoken quite widely about that. Um, and uh, so, as it turns out, like music is 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 an old form of, I guess, call it ecstatic technology. Uh, yeah. It is a means of uh, of training you to enter something like a flow state, um, and in that flow state, you know it's it's like an optimal state of consciousness where um, we all know that we feel our best and we feel like we're performing our best, and and that's not necessarily uh, when we're doing art. You know, we could be doing mathematics, or you know, um, we could be um, you know doing the dishes and um, we could yeah. be like looking after children. We could be performing any activity, but it's a feeling of complete like absorption in the mm. thing that we're doing. Our, like we have a super intense focus and everything else just disappears. Like um, uh, the actions that we take and our awareness seem to be integral to one and uh, to one another. Like, um, that um, any sense of small self vanishes. We 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 become completely absorbed in the task at, at hand. Time doesn't matter, um, and and yet somehow we feel completely on point, focused, and um, and thoughts seem to arise, you know, from uh, a place that we can't really quite name, um, but we seem to know what to do, and um, everybody has this experience from time to time. Um, and when you have it, you know, the question is, you just want to get back there. You know, how, yeah. how you know, the bigger question is, how, how can you be there all the time? You mm -hmm. know? Um, so the chanting tradition that comes out of India was kind of a form of training you to experience that state. And it's quite ancient, but yet suddenly has become quite modern. In, in 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 many of our pursuits, suddenly meditation and chanting, as opposed to being some kind of um, bizarre religious ritual, turn out to be extraordinary practices for training our minds uh, to um, to manage the modern world. With all of its distractions, um, we need to be able to enter flow states even more than ever. Um, and you can see this, um, people come 
to chant and come away saying, you know, it made them somehow better at doing whatever else they were doing. Uh, just even to touch that that state for a little while seemed to enhance their lives for a great deal, a great deal of time thereafter. Um, that keeps me interested in it for sure. Yeah. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why I practice it. That's one of the reasons why I teach it. Um, and what seems to be going on now is a is at least for me is an effort to kind of relanguage it in a way that uh, moves it out of the realm of um, particular religious traditions and uh, puts it in a language that. Uh, is accessible to a lot of people um, because, in fact, this state is accessible to anyone, anywhere, anytime. It just requires a little training to enter it, uh, just like you have to learn to ride a bicycle. Sure. Well, let me ask um, you. But once you've, yeah, just to finish the metaphor, once uh, yeah. once you've learned to ride a bicycle and you know where balance is. You could not ride a bicycle for another 20 years and then get on a bicycle and you could find it. Mm-hmm. So um, it appears that the, that we can be trained to access flow states. Once you are able to do so, then it's like getting back on a bicycle. Hmm. So one, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, when was your first re- ecstatic experience? But I'm wondering whether it, it was indeed when you were chanting at the, on the top of that hill in India, or was there something earlier in your life that, that indicated to you that that ecstatic state was possible? Or was that indeed the first the first time for you? Oh, I, no. I, I mean, as a child, I experienced ecstatic states again and again. I think most children do. Yeah. Um, but we learn to doubt them. We learn yeah. to dismiss them. That's the crazy thing. The process of, you know, of necessarily becoming acculturated um, uh, uh, causes us sometimes to doubt the very things that used to give us joy. And so trying to, then there's a point in which we've, we've, we've come so far from the garden, so to speak, that we have to try and find our way back. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for me, the experience in India was one of kind of reacquaintance. Um, at that point, I was probably about 30. And uh, uh, and through my 20s, I found myself curiously becoming more and more unhappy. You know, mm. suddenly I had the freedom of young adulthood. And what I ended up finding was, you know, I suppose various forms of depression. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the thing is that the experience of meditating, of chanting, of practicing yoga actually thoroughly cured me of that depression, sure. um, it, it, which makes it a powerful tool. Um, I think a lot of people struggle um, with a sense that they've, they've somehow strayed from some some path that that gave them meaning or filled them with wonder, you know, all of the duties and responsibilities of the world sometimes pull us away or often pull us away from what gives us mm. joy. And and it's like we're somehow feel like we have to make a choice to either accept our responsibilities and so we give up joy. 
um, instead of figuring out how to joyfully yeah. fulfill our responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it it's not what I'm suggesting here isn't like running away and becoming a hippie. Uh, it's yeah. what it does mean is is running away from um, from your mind's uh, obsessive focus in certain mm. ways, and and, um, and instead becoming invested in an underlying reality whose nature is is consciousness and, and bliss, um, and uh, so I think the point is to try and experience that a little bit every day, and yeah. it's something you can train yourself to do. So. In short, no, India was, was actually a way of remembering, yes. in a sense, what was already there. Yeah, and I think that's where, I think that these, that any ecstatic experience, what is beautiful is that you, it does remind you, so it reminds you of, of who you are, of that, of the, the reality beyond the reality that you think is real, <laughs> and then mm-hmm cultivating capacity to live that every day and you're talking about just a little bit of mantra a little bit of kirtan or a little bit of practice whatever it is that brings you into that flow state it rewires your nervous system it also means that you can resource that far more easily the more you do it and you know for some people it's music for some people it's the practice of sacred intimacy for some people it's knitting you know it's whatever really brings you alive in that in that yeah. uh, joy of life it, it, it's it, when you start to investigate it from a neurobiological standpoint you realize that the body's very efficient um it, it runs a bunch of different trains on the same set of tracks um the one of the most powerful impulses that we have in fact without it we if we didn't have it we we wouldn't even be here is our impulse towards sexual ecstasy everybody's yeah. equipped with it and when we're in the midst of it we feel a kind of state of union of ecstatic union mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's not neurologically very different from the feeling that we have when we're utterly absorbed in a piece of music are utterly absorbed in, you know, downhill skiing or surfing or um, dancing, you know, with complete abandon. Um, So the same mechanism of ecstasy is flowing through us at all times, and it's using the same same mechanisms. So um, one of those things is the, the autonomic nervous system, and I realize that we're on the radio and uh, perhaps people are going to need concise definitions of this. But in short, um, we have two aspects to it. One is called the sympathetic nervous system, which is your excitation response or your fight or flight mechanism and your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your relaxation response. Generally, the hypothalamus, an organ in your limbic system in your brain, is trying to balance things at all times to try and kind of bring us back to the center. So if you get mm. too excited, it wants to try and chill you out. Things get too <laughs> chilled, you start looking for for excitement, right? But under certain circumstances, uh, it, so it can be induced to fire simultaneously. So we're 
in most normal consciousness, we're moving from states of excitation to relaxation and back. Um, but during sexual ecstasy, uh, both systems are triggered to fire simultaneously. So we feel simultaneously super excited and super relaxed. Yeah. These systems can also be triggered by music. And in fact, are most frequently triggered that way. Um, it starts, however, with breathing. Yes. What happens in both a kirtan, when people are singing together, and also when people are making love, is if you start to observe the breathing pattern, people's breathing starts to link up. Exactly. You'll find that 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 when you're making love, that your breathing patterns, without even thinking about it, start to match those of your lover. In doing so, this causes your brain states, your brain waves, to also come into a place of, um, of synchrony. Um, so the breath is controlling the brain waves, whether it's a beta state of intense attention or an alpha state of intense relaxation. The trigger is your breathing. Hmm. And we all know that we all know this. Um, it's in our language. You know, if somebody's all intense and anxious and everything, we, we tell them to take a breath. Yes. Meaning slow your breathing down. When you slow your breathing down, it naturally causes a state of relaxation. So what happens in a chant is it starts by everybody linking up and singing singing phrases relatively long that require a long exhale, thus a deep inhale, and doing it in rhythm. So in effect, we're engaging in a kind of active group sex yeah, um, in which really, we're all really linking up and breathing, right? Yeah. And it feels like that because it, it, it moves through kind of a sort of, you know, foreplay stage, and then uh, it becomes more intensely rhythm rhythmic it yes. gets faster and faster and it, and it builds up to um to an astounding climax Absolutely. and in the wake of that climax there is a feeling of intense relaxation but intense presence you know mm. it's uh it, it, that's the place that you that we all seek and really want to stay in is one where we feel really intensely aware and alive but also simultaneously really really relaxed so our mechanism for reproduction um, and for creating union with one another um, can be described as a spiritual experience, and for many people is, because the very same neurological mechanisms are being used that produce spiritual experiences. It's the yeah. same stuff, and it, it kind of makes you wonder how it is that our societies got so lost in separating the one from the other? How is it mm. that religions often got so sexually repressive? Yes. You know, and that it's all about it, transcending the body rather than actually being in the body. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the body is, you know, we may not be this body. Ultimately, you yes. know, it may be a temporary package, but it's all we've got. And, uh, and we have to, you know, there's a paradox here. We kind of have to, we have to use our mind to explore our mind. Um, we also have to use our body to um, somehow transcend the body. Um, yeah. 
but uh, to engage in these kinds of um, exercises, whether it's sex or music, mindfully uh, brings us into a different state of awareness of them. I mean, there's there's a big difference between just playing music and playing music with a certain intention. It's the same exactly. thing. Exactly. You know, you can exactly. just have sex or right, but you can also use your intention to you know to take it into a higher dimension. But you're still using the same neurobiological mechanism. The yeah. same flow of neuropeptides is happening. Um, you know, this, this happens, you know, the same things happen in sex as in merging in music. Um, there, an ecstatic experience begins when the brain releases um, the neuropeptides norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, like the heart rate increases, you start to focus. Um, things, uh, you either notice things that you don't usually notice or things that are extraneous get, uh, get turned, uh, you know, tuned out. Yeah, they just um, dissolve away. Right, right. So um, parts of the prefrontal cortex shut down. Um, because we're moving from a beta attentive state to an alpha relaxation state. Um, and uh, so norepinephrine and, uh, and dopamine are what kind of take us there. The next step is there's a, a release of endorphins and uh, a wonderful uh, neuropeptide called anandamide. Um, ananda uh, is the Sanskrit word for bliss. And yeah. science has reached for it to name this chemical, anandamide, the bliss oh. chemical. Um, and, uh, and that bliss chemical is associated with diminishment of pain. Um, and it also is associated with making new connections in the brain. It, 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 bliss, in effect, helps us rewire our brain by enabling uh, new connections, which is why when people are experiencing surges of anandamide, they they report things like breakthroughs, you know, um, different neurons connecting to different neurons in new ways. So bliss, as it turns out, is a way of rewiring your brain, of yeah. discovering new things, of making new connections. And um, ultimately... Go ahead. No, I was going to say that, and that's where I think that really, that moment after on at flight school on the first day after that first song it was the first time I'd been in in Kirtan for a while, and and what you're speaking to is exactly what happened. You, you, I finished, and there was the revelation. The revelation came, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I love working uh, in the realms of sacred sex because it. It's revelationary. It, it, it informs you, and that's what I wanted to, yeah. to to ask you as well. Is if if you were to look at your not just your your research and also your experience of of music and sex, what do you feel it most informed you of that? that has made a profound difference in your everyday life? Well, it's, it's helped me to understand that um, at all times, um, 
my preconceptions, you know, uh, tend to get in the way of, of actual experience. Uh, they often misinform me about what's in front of me. And it's only often later you look back and you're like, oh, I was writing this entire story and not really paying attention to what was happening because uh, I was kind of relying on old connections or old patterns yeah. Um, yeah. as opposed to to being uh, newly aware uh, or continually aware to what's happening in front of my eyes. Um, yeah. It's really astounding when you start to look closely at your perceptions and realize how much you're filling in blanks mm. based upon previous experiences mm. uh, and how much of it, you know, you, you're just making up and how often actually it turns out you're, you're just wrong. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> and, yeah. um, but, you, but somehow you feel like you're right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I had this experience once. Uh, I, I sat for a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it was useful because, you know, 10 days in silence, um, you know, after, after a couple of days, your own mind starts to drive you crazy because yeah. you, you just you realize suddenly, without any other distractions, your, your, your mind is just going on and on. Um, but like at, on the ninth day, this 10th day, 10 day retreat, they actually let you talk again and speak to the people that you've been meditating with all this time. And I realized that, um, I had been making up stories in my mind about all the people around me based upon, you know, that hat they wore or, you know, how much honey they put in their tea or you know, whatever, <laughs> it, it, everything, I, everything I could, every little, every piece of information I could observe. I was constantly making up a story about them mm. and the world. And uh, and then when I finally talked to them, I realized I was completely wrong. I had everybody wrong. And the thing was is that everybody recounted the same experience. We were all wow. wrong about each wow. other. We were all inventing the world based upon, you know, just some way that we could make connections, you know, but, but based on our assumptions, we weren't experiencing what was in front of us at all. We were experiencing all of us together, a projection of our minds. And like, ultimately, I didn't find the Vipassana path very ecstasy inducing. I guess I had a bit (laughs) of an ecstasy junkie in this way. But I did find it an amazing way of looking at my mind and its patterns and projections. Um, And so it was a very useful experience to see how much I was inventing the world. That said, um, what I find about ecstatic experiences, chanting, drumming, dancing, skydiving, surfing, um, is that they're very cleansing in that they allow us to form new connections and to see the world anew, to see it like somewhat cleansed of our habitual patterns Mm. Um, I find it very useful in relationships too. Um, my wife and I um, reached a point of, of, you know, a long-term bit of, you know, a rough patch in our, in our marriage. And uh, a neuro, uh, a neurologist friend of mine actually gave us some really good LSD, and ah. um, and in an intentional way, we yeah. used it to move through some blocks in our relationship. And wow. it was fantastic. We we set ourselves up, 
you know, after exploring all kinds of different places and we would do it, we decided that actually, you know, in our home was the best place to do it. It's the place that we were most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, sort of it's also the scene of the crime, so to speak. You yes. know, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, um, and what was amazing about it was that that ecstatic experience allowed us to also um, ha- unplug from many of our typical patterns and reactions yeah. and uh, to have an experience with one another um, of another kind of ecstatic merger. Um, yeah. And it, it didn't require us to like keep having it. It meant yeah. us, it meant we could have it and the, and what we took away from the experience of dropping acid together shifted the way we saw each other, the way we felt about each other, the way we were able to recognize our patterns in ways mm. that, you know, a year later uh, we're still responding to. Mm. Um, so this is not to say, hey, everybody should drop acid whenever <laughs> you run into trouble in your marriage, but um, because it does require a certain amount of intention and care sure. in order to do it. But it is another way of experiencing the ecstatic mm. and that that experience can shift the way yeah. you feel about things in, in the, you know, in, in the days and months and weeks, you know, going forward. Yeah. Um, so. Do you know what I want to say? Do you know what I love about that is, uh, so my partner Mo and I work with couples and one of the things that we all say and our commitment to each other is is never assume to know the person in front of you like never assume that they're the same person they were a moment ago let alone a year ago and right. in order to not assume it requires you to be so present to the other person and to be respectful Responding to the person in front of you, not the person in your head, which most of the time we're doing. We're responding yeah, we to right. Yeah. We're responding to the person in our in our head rather than the, than the person in front of us. And and to be that present, I love I love I love that you did that because the experiencing that together and rewiring your individual neural pathways and also it, it has to impact the the neural pathways that you then co-create. So, yeah. 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 It, it's funny, though, the, the very thing that, that in some ways um, uh, saves us in, uh, in one circumstance can often doom us in others. We, um, we, we are here. Our genes have been passed on because our ancestors were very good at pattern recognition. Exactly. They were able to determine, you know, that that rustling in the bushes, that shadow movement, that sound, whatever, you know, in, indicated the presence of a of a of a potentially lethal predator, and you would learn to avoid these situations. So just a yeah. small amount of evidence would allow you to draw a conclusion that might, in fact, save your life. And people who uh, who weren't able to do that clearly died and did not pass on their, their abilities or, you know, through their, through their genes. So we became very, very good pattern recognizers. Mm. Um, but the, the problem is, is that then once we recognize a pattern and we store it in there, we, we immediately go to that library 
and make yeah. assumptions that this time that rustling in the bush, you know, it means, uh, uh, you know, a tiger is about to attack us. But it, it could potentially be the rustling of somebody who's coming to bring us food, you know? Yeah. So um, <laughs> we... We we sometimes end up making mistakes about what's mm. in front of our very eyes, and we do this yeah. in our relationships too. You know, I mean, especially in a in a in a marriage or any on family relationship or any you know it can also be people you work with all the time, anybody mm. you encounter all the time. Um, we 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 develop a kind of shorthand and we take a couple little signals and then we make up the usual story and a lot of the time it turns out to be right, but the thing is is it doesn't prepare us for how often it can actually be wrong, and mm. then we get resentful because we feel trapped in other people's projections and uh, and so we have to continually unlock this and and, yeah. and renew it. Um, it. It turns out like ecstatic practices are are really more essential uh just behind food uh to our our well-being and our survival it, they allow us to both uh make neural new neural connections where new ideas uh burst uh into view uh they allow us to look at relationships in different ways to solve problems in different ways so um you know, people say, hey, that chanting was nice, but, you know, why is it useful? Well, that's why, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, <laughs> um, and also and, what it uh, does it, to your body. Because if you think about when yeah. you come out of, when I, so when I'm in my, in my room and I'm just even by myself and I've got my harmonium mat and I'm singing, when I come out of my room and I walk into the kitchen, my partner will always say to me, wow, you feel amazing. Well, why is that? Well, my breath is full. The front surface of my body is soft and open. <laughs> you know, I'm not protecting myself. Right. I'm not in my head. That, yeah. you know, your body is doing what it would do naturally if you were already relaxed, open, and 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 intimate and alive. Right. Yeah, and just as if you want to have, you know, strong muscles, you need to exercise. If you yeah. want to have... Um, uh, uh, it, your body produces these neuropeptides of ecstasy and connection and empathy, but you have to practice. You have to yeah. give. You you have to exercise the ability to do that. You know, um, the final stage of what happens in both sex and in singing together is that the body also produces um, serotonin and oxytocin. And yeah. those uh, those neuropeptides give us not not only feelings of like peace and well-being, but oxytocin particularly gives us a sense of connection, and okay. compassion and care. Um, and without, if we don't continually uh, produce those chemicals, um, I don't. We become kind of like the emotional uh, equivalent of flabby. You know, yeah. um, we just we've lost our emotional tone. And in order to have a world in which we all feel like we can thrive in and find meaning in uh, and both give sustenance to and receive sustenance from, we need to have healthy brain chemistry um, and, uh, and engaging in, in ecstatic ritual um, 
whether that's something like chanting or, you know, going surfing or having lots of great sex, all of those things enhance our ability to care for one another uh, and to find the new ideas and connections that we need to create a better world. Mm. Now, listen, I just want to pause there for a moment and just say, uh, we're nearly at the top of the hour, but I just want to invite those of you who are on the phone line, if you want to ask a question or just share a revelation that's come to you, then press star two now and I will be able to see it and I'll open your line so that you can ask either Dave or myself a question or just share something. So, I know that sometimes people are a bit shy when they dial in on the phone line. There's loads of people hanging out on the webcast. Uh, so just, I just want you to know that you can go ahead and do that. Uh, and while you're pressing star two to raise your hand, if that's something you'd like to do, Dave, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about these two films that you've got coming up that you're involved with? And anything else that you would like to invite us into? So for everyone who's listening, you can go to davestringer.com to see all of Dave's events and workshops. But do you want to tell us more about these two films? Sure. Um, Mantra, Sounds into Silence, is a beautiful film uh, made by uh, the Swiss-slash-English filmmaker Georgia Wies. Uh, and uh, the Spanish cinematographer Wari Om. Uh, they're based in Barcelona, and it features profiles of a number of people uh, who chant mantras, myself included, David Pramal, Krishna Das, Jayutal, and a number of other people whose names may be less familiar, and also uh, the neuroscientist Andrew Newberg, uh, who I have a research project uh, that we're working on getting funded at the moment that explores um, uh, group ritual and how uh, ecstatic states manifest in it. Um, mm. Many people have explored uh, how the how ecstasy erupts in an individual brain, but what we're endeavoring to look at is how we enable each other and how those states of ecstasy are, are passed or triggered by one another. And uh, what it's going to involve is using brain-controlled devices that take the output of certain indicators in our brain and use that to also drive uh, the changes in, in those indicators to drive um, visual media, kind of turning a, a kirtan into both a kind of giant biophedic feedback project and also wow. a tool a tool of research. So uh, Andrew's in that film, I'm in it. I talk about some of the neurobiology of, of, of Kirtan. He talks a lot about it. Uh, I also talk about some of the aspects of social action that are also present in, uh, in the practice uh, and in the philosophy. Uh, and uh, it's a very beautifully shot film. Uh, they've uh, premiered it in the U.S. now, and I think in Germany in June. Um, I've heard potentially November in Australia. Um, I was hoping to have a complete confirmation by our conversation of when that was happening. Okay. Uh, but the answer is stay tuned. Um, mm -hmm. I was also just um, photographed for... Um, 
a film called The Power of Mantra for an Australian website called Uplift Connect, which is filled with really quite thought-provoking articles that do invoke uh, neurobiology and the science behind things. Um, they also make short films. Um, I think what I was photographed for, a short version is coming out in June, June 21st, I think, and okay, the great. longer version coming out this fall. Anyway, that's the, the commercial wow. message here. Uh, but they're both yeah. beautiful, beautiful films. Yeah, yeah I did. I checked, uh, checked both of them out. They look amazing. So listen, there is one question. I'm going to open the line for so just one moment. Dave, how are you doing? This I'm has good. been really, really fa great. So this has been a really fascinating call, actually. Many, many topics that you've opened up there. Now I'd, I'd love to explore with you at some point if we get the opportunity. But today, something I'd like to ask you, um, going back to sharing music within different cultures and what you were talking about with language development, different um, sounds that we have in commonality across different languages. So. I'm really curious if you have found that different cultures with different languages and obviously different ways of living, although we're all human beings in the same, uh, in essence, whether you found that different cultures have responded to different frequencies of music or different ways of delivering music. Obviously, the kind of people that you attract are from a certain I don't know, type of community or niche generally, um, if you get what I'm saying. But yeah. I'm just really curious well, how you found different cultures have responded around the world and whether you've noticed trends. So, for example, you know, Asian cultures are very different to Germanic cultures. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, this has been an ongoing experiment. Uh, going back to, for example, the mantra I was talking about before, Om Namah Shivaya. Uh, I've chanted, I think now, in something like 21, 22 different countries, and in often in the course of a year, I'll, I will chant across 14 or 15 different cultures. And so I've had the experience of, of asking crowds, like how they respond to these sounds. And one of the interesting mm -hmm. things about this mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, is that all the sounds in it mean the same thing everywhere. They mean the same thing to a crowd in Beijing as in Barcelona, as in Berlin, as in Boston, as in Bali. I guess I could, you know, riff through some other letters besides B, but uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that the sound mm is perceived the same everywhere. The sound ah and the sound oh, the sound shh. Yeah, I really got that. The I really same got thing that when you initially talked about it. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if that was so, you know, and uh, and especially in trying it out for audiences in in Asia, I thought, well, this is where I'm going to run off the rails because in Europe, those languages are all Indo-European languages, meaning they're Sanskritic, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, whereas you know Mandarin or Bahasa Indonesia or Thai uh, are not Sanskritic languages. And yet, those sounds are the same. So that tells me that the neural structures inside everyone uh, are identical um, wow. enough that, you know, that, that, that those sounds represent some kind of proto, you know, um, 
root language. Um, with regard to other aspects of it, though, um, the way we hear musical intervals uh, can be quite different, uh, with one notable exception, and that is the perfect fifth. Uh, is the interval that is used in every single form of music. And this is in part because from the perspective of physics, um, the perfect fifth is, is one of the first in the overtone series. You hear a fundamental note, then you hear an octave, and then above that, anytime you make any note, the fifth is essentially there as an overtone. Yeah. And so every culture uses it. Um, how we divide up the scale in between there, oh, there's purists in India who um, who don't use tempered scales at all, preferring, you know, the, uh, the perfection mathematically of the intervals that they're using, um, but it does not allow them to change key. In the West, we've, we've, we've tuned the keyboard slightly out of tune in every direction so that we can change key. If you go to Indonesia and explore gamelan music, for example, they have Slendro and Pelog, two different tuning systems which break, while still using the perfect fifth, break up the rest of their intervals into places that to, say, a Western ear can sound quite out of tune. Um, I produced a record once for a, a sort of avant Iranian group called Axiom of Choice. Um, and, uh, and a lot of what was in there was Persian classical music. And they use what are called Karom notes, which are these, uh, I guess, uh, quarter tone notes that are kind of between Western notes. And uh, those sound really strange until all of a sudden they sound it's as if you can suddenly recognize a new color. Um, and, and then they seem very specific. Um, but those are culturally mediated things. Um, but the sounds that we're singing in mantras turn out to be universal. And, uh, and in fact, uh, throughout kirtan music or anything originating from, from India, uh, the drone is the first and the fifth, and it remains present through the whole, through the mm. whole thing. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That's really interesting. There's a whole bunch of stuff I could geek out with in just what you've talked about in the last two minutes. Thanks for the question. Thank oh, yeah. thank you. All right. So, all right, we're a little over, so we've got to leave it there, Dave. Thank you so much for thank joining Thank you, Lisa. Us it was a delight to talk to you. I feel like we could, you know, continue with another installment yeah. at some point and I, I hope at some point we do. Yeah. Um, I look forward to returning to Australia and I uh, uh, hope your listeners stay tuned and uh, so when the next things are coming up, it's still possible I may return in November. Um, okay, great. Uh, depending upon whether this film is getting released or not. If not, I'll be back next year and hopefully we'll be doing another flight school um, which is, think of it as flow state training for people. Yes, and we'll, absolutely. we'll go from there. Yeah, All right. absolutely. Great to all talk right. to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening and uh, look forward to speaking soon. You're listening to a recording by Lisa Page. For further information about events, programs, or mentoring, please visit www.lisapage.com. That's L-I-S-A-P-A-G-E dot com.